Hello everyone, welcome to Subsurface Talks, the podcast where I talk with guests from CGI industry, mainly Blender community, but not only, talking about digital art, digital artists' life, and the meaning of life, you name it. And today I'm very excited to have a very interesting guest, Andres Stevens from Colombia. He's a 3D artist, I would say 3D generalist, uh, animator, visual development artist. Well, you could probably fit him into many areas. He's like a man of many talents and many interests. So welcome, Andres. And can you tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself? Like what got you into 3D, into Blender and uh, what you do? Okay, well, thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm actually super excited, a little bit nervous, but I'm glad you mentioned about my work and the journalism that I do. So basically, I currently work as a generalist, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit of technical direction, a little bit of project management, uh, a lot of uh, NPR rendering, and a lot of other things, from script writing to final renders. So I started with True Space back when I was a teenager here in Colombia, though, just to clarify, I'm also half Kiwi. So that's why I have that mm -hmm. accent at the moment. So I grew up in 3D as a, as a hobby when I was a young teenager, and I purchased my first licenses with True Space, which is uh, now dead. But there's a, there's a common theme here, because I, I started with True Space, then 2008, the housing crash, killed off the software, Microsoft bought it out, left it for free, but not open source. And it was a great software. I really loved it. Super intuitive, very icon, uh, lots of clear iconography and things like that. And then from there, I started learning Softimage. I used Softimage for about five years, and I produced maybe 25 minutes of a children's pilot television show, which never got sold. That was my first project, typically, as kind of, I guess you could say, trying to be a professional. But then, mm. guess what happened with Softimage? It got bought out by Autodesk and also got killed. So I had sunk maybe a decade of my teen life into software that had died. So I started picking up Blender. I was already using Blender to some degree, mainly because of the video sequencer and the compositor, even in the 2.76 days. And then from there, I managed to start working in some animation studios here in Colombia and doing more of my own projects with Softimage and Blender, but at the, uh, at the expense of my comfort, because I was very comfortable with the way TrueSpace did things. I was very comfortable with the user experience from Softimage. So coming into Blender was uh, a little bit frustrating. But then I met a friend of mine who also was a TrueSpace fan, and he started to use a fork, or he created a fork of Blender called B for Artists, which I picked up immediately really loved it because it was starting to hit the goals that I really needed coming from the other two software. And I continued working through there. And since then, I've been freelancing and doing projects with outsourced clients and working with publicity, uh, game assets production, game art design, and also television series and music videos, uh, pilots, sorry, television series pilots and music videos, and a whole bunch of other small projects and things like that, along with my own hobbies and personal things that I like to develop over the past decade. There's a lot more happening. This year is very exciting because I'm actually starting to change my career a little bit, like the how I'm going to do it. Um, there's a rumor that my freelancing is about to end, 
but also going on to something new and exciting, which I'll probably share later in this podcast. Mm. So that's a rough summary of where I've come from, what I do. And so far, I can count about 83 different projects from beginning to end that I have completed in all of those software. That sounds like a massive journey. So I guess we will have a lot of topics to dig into. And uh, you mentioned the Blender for Artists. I guess that's the topic that I will want to also discuss maybe later on during the show, uh, which is a pretty in interesting thing, like a different approach to Blender's UI, which is also like always an interesting and controversial topic because Blender always does things an unusual way, right? Uh, it's like the Blender way. It used to be even more weird, like non-industry non standard, let's, let's call it that way. Uh, now it's aligning a little bit more to, to the standard ways with the 2.8 and later on additions. Like today, even we are recording uh, at the very date when Blender 3.6 was released. It's an exciting day. So I guess the excitement uh, let it uh, give us the, the right flow to the conversation. And I wanted to start with the thing that you mentioned, that a lot of your work revolves around the NPR. Maybe some of our audience doesn't know what the shortcut means. So can you explain what NPR means? Okay, well, it's good you touched up. I was talking with my friends this morning. I have a little drawing group on Discord, and we practice drawing with grease pencil and another things every day. Well, every two days. On, uh, during the weekdays of the week. And they asked me, what is NPR? And well, basically, 3D was originated with the goal of a sailing of reaching physically-based rendering, things that looked realistic, things that look like that has materials and reflections and bounced light and everything. This was the holy grail of 3D for the past 20 years. More, 30 years, because we know ever since the early 90s. So we've currently hit the ceiling of what we can do with physically-based rendering. So the next step is NPR, non-physically-based rendering or non-photoreal rendering. So NPR, which is the short term for that, is everything about stylized rendering, painterly, a cartoon, anime, things that uh, you've probably seen from the Spider-Verse, from uh, Puss in Boots, uh, the Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles that have come out lately, a lot of short films in Anessi, lot of experimental animation that's coming out and that is basically the new vanguard of the next holy grail concerning 3d animation and digital animation so mpr is non-photoreal rendering so i guess we could say that it's everything other than photorealistic rendering right in 3d pretty much yeah anything that doesn't look real <laughs> so it's like the multiverse like it's all the other possible solutions that we can think of. You mentioned that it's it's been like a holy grail uh, pursuing this uh, idea of photorealism up till now. It's even Some people like find it uh, their goal still. And I did even a poll on Twitter before recording this episode asking people like what's more exciting in 3D. And uh, photorealism was still kind of holding strong with the votes, but uh, NPR was like almost two times bigger. Which know. is nice to see, actually. I quite enjoy that fact. And I think that that kind of leads to the the very roots of, of the whole animation industry because it's, it really started with, uh, you know, cartoons and things that were stylized from the very beginning, like with the Walt Disney stuff and uh, some experimental, you know, artistic animations, uh, motion, uh, stop motion animations. Artists did like crazy movies that, that are 
like even in the I don't know 60s, 70s, like animations. If you if you even think about you know the Monty Python's Flying Circus and the Cat Hawk animations that uh, that they did in in the TV show, like they are pretty like pretty absurd and crazy and so to speak non photorealistic, right? So I guess it's kind of like a full circle that the animation does right now. That's right. Yes, and I actually come to think of it, I mean, it depends on the industry you're looking at because visual effects always will strive for realism to fit in with uh, audiovisual footage. But also, like I mentioned the full circle, there's another full circle that I would like to predict is also live performances, but with digital puppets. I'm sure that's going to come and boom within the next five yeah. years. We'll see. But um, it's interesting. I like the whole cycle of the artistic expression, the cycles over the past, I guess you could say century in the past three decades and coming back to the previous three decades from color television into um, the realistic cameraography and sound and all of the stop motion and the, uh, the experiments that came out ever since the camera was invented. It's always exciting. I'm glad you hear that. And your poll also helps me confirm about that excitement. Yes, and uh, I would like to like maybe dig a little bit into that history. Like you mentioned the Spider-Verse, which is like kind of an obvious title that uh, comes to mind to everyone that's thinking about NPR and the whole stylized animation revolution, let's, let's call it, uh, that's happening right now. Uh, it was like a like when I first saw the Spider Verse, it was like a breath of fresh air after you know seeing all those three D Pixar animations, for example, and stuff that kind of started looking almost the same or samey, and then the, it was like a total blow into my face, and I, I really loved it. Uh, but I'm thinking, uh, was there any other titles or or maybe early childhood memories that you have, like some some title of animated movie that really inspired you and uh, made you want to do that that ignited the spark well the first animation that really made me want to start to do animation was this i think it was one of the first animated series a cg animated series called reboot or local reboot i don't remember the exact name where it had like these green skinned and blue skinned uh characters with really zany like uh ancient looking 3d and they had little microchips walking around and there was kind of a digital world this really spoke to me it was all in 3d similar to what like the first two story movies were like maybe even with less quality but it was a it was a television show that really really stuck to me a lot and the other things that really got me into the animation was the books that were that i read the illustrated storybooks from the local library when I was a kid, I used to go to the library, used to get as many books as I could, huge towers higher than my head. I'll carry it as a kid, check it out, you know, a dozen books, 20 books, check out for those two weeks, and then come back. And from there, I could uh, figure out the art, look at the things like uh, the books that really talked to me a lot was Dinotopia, for example. So Dinotopia was a series with a lot of world building, a lot of really beautiful work by, I think it was James Gurney, I think is his name. He did the work, uh, I think it was James. I'll have to double confirm that for later. But Dinotopia was one of those big ones, and there's a lot of other illustrated books that I really enjoyed. And unfortunately, since I was a kid, I never paid attention to the author. So I don't remember who did what. 
But there were some books of these fishes. There was like an anthology of these fishes going on a journey, similar to like what Shark Tale was trying to be. Um, but it was beautifully done with watercolors and like a pen and line work and pencil work. It was absolutely gorgeous. And there were multiple books of them, and each of them was a big, uh, like an A4 cover on its side, all uh, two pages across, a really large, beautiful book. And these, these storybooks spoke to me a lot. That children's show spoke to me a lot. And then there was obviously the animation like Postman Pat, Thomas the Tank Engine, uh, serialized television, even uh, Blue's Clues, and Sesame Street. These types of things also spoke to me a lot. But what really influenced me the most to get into animation was Lego, and also my father. He worked in television most of my childhood, and he worked with puppets. So he created puppets, he created a stop motion and little models and sets, and throughout my childhood, the garage or the center of the house was always a workshop, there was always a green screen, he always used a blender to do his visual effects, even on old potatoes of a computer. And when I was uh, getting stuck with Age of Empires 2, playing uh, 10 hours a day, I also studied at home. He's like, you get a, gotta get off the computer, you know? You gotta do something with your life. Or if you want to be on the computer, here, try this. This is like infinite Lego. This is 3D. See what you can do with it. I had no internet. I wasn't allowed to use it because it was very expensive and very slow, so I read manuals. Big blocks of paper, and that's how I started to convert my Lego playing time and my game addiction into actual 3D. And from there, I started making some basic title sequences for his uh, television show for a local TV station here in the city of Bogota in Colombia, and that's how I started the 3D. That's what actually got me into it. What pushed me through, like this is when I'm like 13, 14, 15 years old, what really got me into loving what I wanted to do and back into it because I took a sabbatical. I left 3D for about five years while I traveled around the world and became like a, uh, a lost soul, I guess you could say. I, the storybooks from my childhood, I started writing them. I started making a 20-minute feature film in script form, and I wanted to do it in 3D. I was 17 years old. Too ambitious. I only had a, a Pentium 2 running 1.7 gigahertz. I had a graphics card of 128 megabytes, and that was all. <laughs> I could barely render a frame in 15 minutes, and it would have no lighting or anything. It was, it was very basic. So I tried to cut it down to a short film of 15 minutes and then five minutes and then i thought oh how about a children's storybook <laughs> and that's what but that addiction to that creative uh world building at 17 years old and then 18 years old and then going into my sabbatical really i held on to that and that made me want to stick into the whole purpose of animation which is storytelling in a imaginative immersive world and to me, sometimes a, photo, a photography or a photo or just filming situation to me doesn't quite capture the, the imagination, the dream, where things just shift and shape and you're open to interpretation. Did you see it? Did you not see it? What is that thing? Is that thing? Maybe it's something else. 
that whole dreamy storytelling concept of the imagination as a child, where I could be looking at a sofa, but that sofa is a grand canyon. That lounge is the desert. That to me really drove the painterly aspect or the NPR aspect. And that's why I love that form of animation the most, because it really touches onto that childhood expression that I really loved and really enjoyed. So that's why I tried to get into that. I love this story about how, you know, those early childhood memories, they, they kind of like spark your imagination and your sensitivity on aesthetic things. And I also kind of recall myself, uh, you know, watching beautifully made uh, illustrations. And especially, I remember that I especially loved uh, these ones that were very much stylized or very much like open to interpretation, as you say. And they were also very often made by, by very talented uh, big names artists. And in Poland, for example, we had like these bedtime shows, uh, animated movies for, for kids. And sometimes, you know, animation is considered a thing for kids. I wouldn't consider this an insult because it's, it's really what it's all about, like the sparking the anima imagination. And I guess kids are very sensitive for that. And these animations were really, really like, uh, like they were done in stop motion, for example, with, with puppets, as you mentioned puppeteering, right? that your father did the, the mm -hmm. wonderful thing uh, uh, of muppets right muppets are for kids and for adults uh, really because they, they were like mixing those two worlds in a, in a nice way and the sesame street yeah. is like it's more strictly for kids but uh, i also really love uh, the, the works from tim burton for example like the animation uh, animated movies i guess they they must have also been sparked mm -hmm. by some kind of a childhood memory like like yours right the, the whole puppet thing a little bit creepy, right? But oh, for sure. very beautiful. Yes, it was a different time then. We often look back in history with rose-colored eyes and we think it used to be better, but it was a pretty dark place back then. So the cartoons reflecting that dark nature or really like adult themes or really macabre kind of topics, it was, it was a reflection of the world at the, at the time. So it, yeah, it's very beautiful. Okay, so, so maybe let's get back from the history to, to the more uh, recent times. And I've seen like in your social media, uh, a lot of your experiments or nice uh, concept work that you're doing and experimented with different techniques in, in Blender. Uh, for example, this uh, little octopus that you made uh, recently, um, which, which is like, uh, is looking kind of like a concept drawing, uh, a cartoony concept drawing, but it's in 3D. And it has that painterly style that you mentioned, like, a little bit of a watercolor -y or just how can you tell us how it was done uh, like what, what kind of techniques you are using to achieve those effects okay well i can't take the credit for the design but i can give you a bit of background on the structure so basically i'm using 3d modeling or i'm using the grease pencil to sketch the general uh, gesture of the drawing and we're doing this based on references provided by one of us on Discord as we do like this drawing practice session, what I mentioned earlier in the podcast. So we have some references. Every one of us, one day, we provide some references and we play a game and we set a timer uh, to test our abilities of observation, control of hand, and things like that. But sometimes on the last piece, we have 25 minutes. So on this 25-minute piece, I usually think, oh, well, I have time to do something in 3D. So I block it out. I use curve, B0 curves for the tentacles. I use box modeling for the head. 
quick sculpting and switch to box modeling and subdivision, apply subdivision and, and continue. Then I append a really basic NPR shader that I created using the map range node into the subsurface node so that the geometry kind of blends into each other in EV and kind of get that kind of multiple layers of color. So it's really, it's a PBR with lots of subsurface uh, with a map range node set by uh, the light. And from there, I append that to the scene, throw in the colors, and then I do a draw over with the grease pencil with the details on the surface. So this draw over gets me the general uh, detail that I'm looking for. Sometimes I draw in the shadows that I need, and I try to do it all within 25 minutes. So the design usually process, I'm still learning how to do that. My ultimate goal is character design so that and storyboarding for later. That's why I started. These are just practices from reference, so I cannot take credit for the design, but I am now on day 114, 30 minute practices mm -hmm. per day. And now I'm doing it maybe twice a week, three times a week. So I guess you could say three months of half an hour, that's not a lot of work, but that's what I'm trying to do to get my skills up. And I thought, why not do it in the grease pencil? Why not try to practice with 3D? Because I also do every Monday with some other friends on Discord. I mean, you guys have to get into Discord. The community stuff there is absolutely incredible. You can make some good friends. You have some good fun. So in Arendelle's Discord server, every Monday, there's a one-hour challenge to create, get a word, and make a render or an animation within one hour with that one word. So we all practice that, and, I, and we've been doing it for nearly mm. 100 episodes. And I've competed with maybe 80 of them. I've won multiple ones. We do a vote at the end of it and everybody competes and votes. So this, this one hour limit to model something in 3D and put it to render however you want, along with the, the time limit of the grease pencil, I thought fuse it together, mix it together, practice that spontaneity and free yourself from the huge massive project you want to do and just make something which is very similar to what people do with dailies, but in this case with a time limit while you do it, which means you have to cut corners. You have to learn to use your tools really quick. You have to be quick and dirty to get the job done and worry about the final image at the end of the day. So if I rotate the camera of these drawings on the 3D, it looks terrible, but I can get some parallax, which can look okay. And, and maybe in the future, I can do other more complex things if I had more time for character design. But at the, at the moment right now, it's just learning to let go of my hand, let my hand do the thing. And you learn to talk with my hand from my mind. That's the old, that's the old challenge of everybody. Uh, yeah, that really resonates with me. Uh, you know, I'm trying also to, to kind of practice as, as regularly as possible, uh, as you know, life and uh, daily duties allow uh, to to just uh, get sketching, you know, because what what you described it's it's kind of like a digital form of quick sketching, right? Uh, concepting very rough ideas like thumbnails, uh, just to get the creative juices flowing, and also experiment with the form and uh, not to fo over focus on details, on the tools, on the technical parts, right? It's it's like quickly finding a solution uh, just to get as much idea flowing into that piece of uh, quick piece of work right yes that's exactly why we do the exercises and also a quick tip um if you want to make a new habit when you have friends as accountability 
buddies, I guess you could say. Uh, it really helps because having the anticipation of showing your habit, daily habit, to somebody really helps. And I've, I found it very fun to share these studies. I can also give credit to a couple others that helped me start with gesture, gesture, gesture study. So I highly recommend trying to do things with others as well. It can be a community practice event. A lot of fun. What you mentioned also, uh, like doing the daily habits, is, is, is a thing that many, many artists struggle, right? With getting something on a regular basis that you sometimes you get on a bigger project and you just get discouraged by the amount of work that it requires like like you mentioned trying to tackle animated movie at a very young age without the the gear and the experience that that's needed for that it's like a, you know wanting to climb the mountain without even going up a smaller hill uh and without the the, the necessary training of the muscles and stuff and what what really helps me for example to keep yep. keep the habit of of drawing like I draw with pen and ink usually uh, it's it's just having the gear always with me, which is uh, you know just like a small sketchbook, the the pen I can always carry it like a wallet uh, with me, and wherever I have like a little bit of a free time, I can pull it out of my bag and just start sketching or do, doodling whatever. Sometimes I just don't feel like that, but it's it's kind of it reminds of itself uh, to me wherever i have the opportunity so i was uh, i was going to ask you whether you do things like that outside of you know a regular computer work do you also do stuff like that on mobile or i don't know ipad or whatever because i've seen like people doing crazy things for uh, with nomad sculpt for example well you're onto something about making habits you got to prepare your environment and make it easy to make the habit i think that's super important you're onto that i used to have a galaxy note number four many years ago lasted me five years i loved it i used to draw on the bus i used to draw waiting for my english classes because i didn't always survive by freelancing i had to teach english i had to manage houses as a landlord i had to uh, hustle biking sometimes three hours a day and then when i get home do my 3d stuff um it, it's been a long 10 years but um, uh, yes, I used to have my phone with a little pen and draw on the phone or in a notebook. Uh, today, though, I work from home. So I have my Wacom here and my my startup of Blender, or I guess you could say B for Addis. I made it so it already has the grease pencil, has the canvas, has the camera, has all the brushes that I want and all the things that I need already set up. The lighting as well. Everything's just ready to go. Load up the software, start drawing. And usually with my practices, it's the first thing in the morning. So I don't have time to like prepare anything. So I just sit down, turn on, open up, draw. I'm good to go. I also have, uh, when I'm traveling, like outside for the weekend, I have the iPad. So it's got the eye pencil on it. I just use that. I'm not a big fan of getting my hands dirty. That's also another reason I chose to do CG. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I should, though. <laughs> But I like my undo. Yeah, and undo is like uh, it's a great tool, but it's also like a double-edged sword. Like, at least from my experience, like what really helps me with, uh, for example, the ink drawing thing. There are pros to to you know making the underlying drawing with uh, you know on layers, or or if you do it on traditional media, it could be you know just pencil sketch and then you just ink it and wipe out the the sketch. But when you're drawing like full on ink 
you just have to you know you commit to to the stroke very much so so you have to set your mind to be yeah. to just let loose and uh allow yourself for a mistake and that's yeah. i think that's a very healthy thing to do but but you know both both things have their place right the other one is definitely better for production that's true for for final uh, final things and results and results but that's also the the timed limits actually allows me to not use undo because then you just have to push forward um Sometimes if you delete something, even though you've uh, spent five minutes to do it, you've just burned five minutes plus the extra five minutes to recreate it. That's 10 minutes of your one hour to do your final piece. It could be uh, you might not be able to finish your piece by then. Same with the one minute drawing or the two minute drawing or even a 25 minute drawing. There's not a lot of room to go back and start over. So if you do... <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's why I had to resort to time limits <laughs> to get that. Yeah, so we are talking a little bit about making habits and, uh, you know, honing your, let's say, manual, a little bit of traditional skills, like for, for an artist. It like, used to be a lot of that uh, mm -hmm. before the digital era began, even even photography like before before it was introduced, which was kind of like a little bit of way to automate, right? making the depictions of people kind of replace the, the portrait artist a little bit, but not, not entirely, maybe. I wanted to ask you, like, how, how do you feel about that, uh, the value of this kind of practice, uh, you know, developing the skills of, of that sort in the era when everything gets automated with, uh, with AI and stuff of that sort? Funny story, funny story. I actually started to learn how to draw and practice with my dailies and the drawing and grease pencil because of AI. Mm -hmm. All right. Why? Because I wanted to learn how to control it better. So I have a couple of friends of mine. They know the technology and I've been in the beta behind the scenes even before any of this tech came public. Uh, so I got to shout out. You know who you are. But uh, this technology, I've had a close eye on it for a very long time. I've actually had a chance to use it on my new machine. This year, I had a dream come true, purchased a new machine with a 4090, which means I could start to use it in locally. And there are some things that I've realized to be super fun. With some of my drawings from Grease Pencil, I've managed to run it through the machine with depth detection, line detection, and then from there, I could start iterating the characters freely with the same structure of the drawing that I've done. I've also had the ability of trying out different styles, fixing the anatomy if it's like really bad or changing up the lighting if I need it. And I could use my drawings as a director and I can start iterating them for extreme ideas. So if you haven't noticed with my painterly project with... Um, I have these music videos by the Android Repair Workshop, uh, Android Repair Shop by DG Unknown, and I've currently produced six episodes over the past year and a bit, and I currently have another episode in production, and there's another six more episodes before I finish the album. But this entirely, this entire painterly process, uh, the past two or three episodes, I actually started to use the image generation to help me convert my script into something visual. And, uh, and I did a time. We did a competition. I did it with my friends. I measure my time with all my work. I have a time tracker. 
I have a Kanban system, an agile system. I measure all my work and I know in a granular way how many hours on what task does it take to do how much animation. And my average for like this painterly project, it's a very cheap project. It takes me between, so far, it's taken me about 600 hours to produce nearly 15 minutes of animation. So it's been relatively cheap because back in the day, I used to hire some people and we spent 1,200 hours for two minutes of animation. And typically, like if for even like motion graphics and things, it would take at least 100, 150 hours per minute of animation in something that's relatively a sellable quality and i can't say my quality is 100 percent, but i track my project times and things so i thought okay so how long does it take me to convert a script into something visual it would take me between 12 16 to up to 20 hours of my work to get some idea of an of a storyboard or something from the script to a video edit or an animatic so that I have a basis for the layout and everything. Between 12 and 20 hours. So I used the AI. I did it in 45 minutes. So I can convert my script to something visual, which gives me a general idea. Not only do I have some idea for cameras, I got ideas for lights, I got ideas for everything, and that was in 45 minutes, which means I could use that. I don't use any of these images in the final product, but it saved me 20 hours of work. <laughs> so that to me, like, that technology is terrifying for a lot of people, and I understand why, but having and seeing the work and knowing how it works, and also with my drawings, my drawings are copies of other people's references on the internet. If I was condemned for doing that, then I can condemn the AI for doing that. If I can do that and draw somebody else's reference freely because it is not a copy, then the AI should have a right to be used in that way. So it's an interesting moral debate. And I saw your discussions about that earlier, but I just wanted to mention that like, I do use it in my workflows, but I use it in a way that enhances my creativity because I don't want to slog 20 hours just to convert a script into a general idea. I want to get to work. I want to do the layout. I want to do the animation. I want to do the character design. I want to do the work. I want to get the lighting. I will love the lighting step. I want to do the lighting and the cameras and the movement. And I want to use the technology that I developed for the painterly effect to get the job done. I don't want to spend time drawing on some pictures to make sure that the script has a general idea to then not even use the final pictures in the final product. I want to get the cameras and shoot it, you know, like a real-time real director. And I have a general idea in my mind already because I already had somebody give me some ideas already. I would have paid somebody to do the concept art, yes, but this is a low-budget project for a commission. There is no television budget. There is no large budget. I'm an independent creator making animated web series. So in this case... I don't have a team of people that I hire. I have hired people, and it's a big budget. These are lots of money goes everywhere. But sometimes you have a debate with an artist. You try to tell them what you want. You talk about it over days sometimes. You have a meeting, another meeting, review the art. They do the iteration. It's very extensive, 
it's very stressing for the artist and for the director to get the job done. So sometimes it's a little bit easier on everybody if you can like just draw it up, generate iterations, pick the ones you need best, recreate it, and get the job done yourself, and then start working with people to do the more fun, tricky parts, which could be animation, lighting, layout, and the actual story. So getting less nitty gritty and more about the art using technology. So it's kind of it's a different outlook, I guess. So that's my opinion concerning AI, which probably is controversial. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess the, the topic is really interesting, and it's it has uh, you know I really struggle to get my you know kind of my own take on this because I I kind of get the, both sides of of the story. Like I really think that the technology is very powerful, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's just like computers. It's automating a lot of stuff, um, allowing for new, you know, new perspectives for for the creation. And then there's the hard part that some of the models that are openly available right now, like Midjourney, for example, or I guess Stability AI, um, so Stable Diffusion, right? Uh, these were these get the controversy of being trained on data data sets that were you know, copyrighted and stuff like that, and people are. Uh, people, uh, artists like, for yeah. example, Greg, Greg Rutkowski, uh, they get they, they kind of feel personally personally exploited because some people using these softwares were like directly trying to mimic their style. I also I also made a little experiment of my like yeah. of my own trying to to make a a Batman shot in Mid Journey. I deliberately made the prompt so that it kind of uh, resembled the Tim Burton movie, which was like one of the first movies I, I've seen uh, as a child, uh, and uh, and it did a pretty good job on making like kind of like a plagiarized version. And it, it I, I wasn't really like digging into the software. Like perhaps if I worked even more, I could get even closer. But this was like my goal, right? Just to, just to make something that resembled. Yeah, the original shot. So I kind of like had the ill intention at the very like it was exper exper an experiment. Probably you know if you if you're not trying to do this, you're getting different results. Yeah, but the moral debate is yeah. I mean, it's still early. I mean, at the end of the day, like these models is kind of tricky. But it's I I've talked a lot, many hours ever since like the big huge hype in November. But this was something that was already cooking from January June last year. January last year, even in 2012, when Google developed the first uh, diffusion models. So 2012, we had the puppy slugs. And the puppy slugs was the first image generation, 2012. So this was just, this was cooking for a decade. This has been a tech that's been cooking for a decade. But the similar debate is like, uh, it's, it's all about data privacy and who owns what your, what your data is. I guess that's basically... Like, what is mine on the internet? How should I, uh, how should I be respected on with my data? What I do, and an image or your art is that—that's your data, your identity. It's the same thing with Cambridge Analytics or the Sioux, uh, the the GDPR, and what it tries to protect in Europe, or the big uh, uh, Sioux uh, cases between Google and Apple and others like that around the world, and also. The, the same cases that we had with the image search engines and like the book documentation things by Google and other things like that. At the end of the day, it's all about data. Who owns what? 
But the tool is great because I chose to use local generation mainly because the models, I could uh, choose a newer one, which has only CCO content. Uh, I could use my own models. I could train it on my own data, which my friend is doing right now. So he's created a lot of work and he's trained his own models. And then he uses that to kind of drive and generate new stuff with his own art style, which I think is a huge, interesting potential for a lot of people. But it's still a little bit clunky, really hard to use. So the common person who has an opinion who doesn't know how to use these technical tools yet considers it still a black magic. But uh, yeah, it can be quite ethical. You don't have to use these open models. You can do everything locally with your own, which is going to be fun. Mm, yeah, so so I guess, you know, AI has been talked uh, uh, through and through. Uh, and also in the podcast, I, I'm trying... I'm, oh, always trying when preparing questions like to make it so that we cover everything else but the but the ai but but we end up talking about ai <laughs> anyways <laughs> yeah, it's funny that we touched that exactly yeah. back and, to um, mbr <laughs> um, uh, i wanted to ask you also about the other tools that you're using for for those experiments like you said uh, that you're using blender you know some modeling and grease pencil and also like shading NPR shading mm -hmm. experiments, and I wanted to ask also about other tools because I've, I've visited your web page and uh, you're you're also a Krita user, right? And Krita, uh, a little bit digital digital painting software or um, the the game engines Unreal. Yeah, I like Unreal sometimes. I'm using Unity a little bit. I prefer Unreal. Yeah. Okay, so. The tool, the key tool that I use, my main workhorse, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and also with the painterly effect that I use, I spent, I use B for Artists. So B for Artists stands for to be for the artist, which means develop the um, software for the artist. Um, so about seven years ago, someone was very discontent with the way Blender was handling the interface. This was in 2.74, 2.75 days. And a lot of code was being commit and a lot of code was being rejected. So um, with that, he decided to create a fork and created a separate uh, para vision and paradigm for the GUI and the user experience inside of people artists. So that worked. And from there, we could, uh, I could use that. So I use B for Artists the most, which is basically Blender, but with a little bit of a few guidelines or rules that we've implemented. So for example, uh, if you open up Blender and then open up B for Artists, first thing you notice is that there is colored icons with a solid shape and there is a toolbar at the top and there's also a lock camera button <laughs> and a number of other things like that. So you look around the interface, you go into all the menus, and then you realize that all of the menus have icons. And you go through and you search out and you go into the node editor, and there is a node shelf where you can click on a, on a node and then drag it into the interface without actually loading up the add menu. Uh, you go into the geometry nodes and then you're like, hang on a minute, how do I access the shader nodes? Should I go to the shader tab? No, you just go to the top left corner and click on the shader tab switch button in the editor. So B4 Artist is about accessibility, discoverability, and also about uh, iconography. Um, 
it doesn't look great, but the brain needs to see if you if you studied some art and also the neuroscience behind it, the brain needs to see silhouette first, the general shape of something. Then it needs to see the color. What color is it? Is it dark or white? Is it bright or danger? And then you start to look at the details, the lines, the dots, the, the fur, the eyes, the emotions of the face. But in general, you see the general shape, you see the general form, and then the color, and then you see the details. So when it comes to iconography, you move the mouse to the general shape, which is the silhouette of an icon. Then you move it to the color, which gives you the code that you need. Does it, is it green or not? And then you look at the details. Does it have the form, the lines, or things like that? The problem with modern GUI at the moment, the trends of the past decade or so, or past five years, and especially with Blender as well, is that icons are monochrome, and they have no silhouette. They're only lines. So your brain, to read an icon, to click on that particular operator, your brain has to read the icon, and like you're reading the text, before you know where to click. And that is a couple of milliseconds slower than clicking on something with a color and a silhouette. So there's a neuroscience behind it. That's why we do that with Be For Artist. It looks terrible, but it is very nice and efficient, especially when you need to click around things. It also helps you to read what a text does without needing to read the text. So Blender has their language translations, which is great, but some things don't translate very well. But if you can see what an operator does, then you can know how to use it in a much quicker way. So that's what, and also B4Artist is about personality, uh, personalization to the toolbar to the left. All of the operators for like uh, geometry, cleaning up, UVs, all of these operators, they're exposed on a top level inside panels that you can pin to the left. In Blender, this doesn't exist, which means we have the ability to select multiple brushes and grease pencil, uh, animation controls that are usually hidden away or hidden behind hotkeys. In Blender, there are more than 1,400 hotkeys that you would need to memorize to use it efficiently, or you start using the interface. With Beef Artist, we have minimal key map and everything else you could use using the interface because everything's exposed. Blender also has a problem of repeated operators in the interface and also missing operators, only hotkey accessible. So B for Artist exposes hotkey operators only to the interface so that you don't need to know the hotkey to use it. And you can assign your own hotkey for later. You know, with a minimal key map, the hotkey editor in Blender is terrible. <laughs> so if you have something with this very minimal to start with, it's easier to customize. We also focus on something more familiar from other software like WER. F to focus, left click to move, right click to rotate the viewport like most uh, 3D software out there, so very similar to Unreal Engine, Cinema 4D, Houdini, Maya, Max, all of the others, other than Blender. And so it's a little bit easier to switch and interpolate between software because the hotkeys are not so intense to translate. So these are the, like the philosophy behind Be For Artist, and I help with Ooh, the development so there. You kind of made the introduction to the project, and then uh, I will uh, stick some pins into that um, and try to you know try to play the devil's advocate for for the for the vanilla blender right yeah yeah this is fine because uh, you know most people i guess uh, when they are starting to learn the software they download the official version from the blender.org website and they have 
like the the vast one of the one of the strength power powers of of blender which is the community namely you know all the all the accessible knowledge base of tutorials on youtube or, or written tutorials courses most of them uh, are based on the official version of the blender so you kind of like get a limited more limited uh, learning resource when you decide to to use this kind of a forked version like how do you manage this kind of this kind of problem of a user okay well b for artist is blender so every tutorial is compatible except for the hotkey but if a tutorial is teaching you how to do something with hotkeys only it is not a good tutorial because hotkeys is a secondary user experience and also they need to tell you what is the operator where is the operator and how to use the operator what's it called if they just tell you a sequence of keys to press like a piano then how are you going to learn what you're actually doing you need to know how and you need to know why but in that with that said all of the tutorials from blender are compatible with for artists because it is the same architecture so the same operators the same workflow the fundamentals of the, the 3d design and elements are compatible with everything inside Blender. Sculpting, drawing, grease pencil, animation, all of that. We just try to make those things a little bit easier. So if you know the fundamentals or learning the fundamentals of Blender, you can apply them to B4 Artists. And also, B4 Artists comes with the Blender hotkeys anyway. So if you really want to, switch it to Blender hotkeys and you're good to go. You've got all of the benefits of the Blender interface with Oh, the Beef Artist interface, sorry, with the Blender hotkeys. So you don't really need to, there is no wall. The wall is a imaginary because it is Blender deep down. Yeah, I really like this thing that you said about tutorials and uh, what differentiates a good tutorial from a bad tutorial. The thing that you you really have to understand what you're doing and this is like the core thing. And I, this kind of brings me back to, to the way that you described your experience with uh, that you started really learning 3D with TrueSpace and other softwares, and you kind of had this this gap when you when you started using Blender because it was a, a different software. But really, like you had the core concept already in your mind, right? How how 3D works. Uh, I also had the experience of switching softwares for for some projects, and it really like once you're really good in Blender, for example, it's not really that hard like of course like the the, the base layer of, of hotkeys of specific tools it might be a problem for some time but it's it's much quicker than you when you start uh, from scratch because you really have those key concepts in your mind and you know what you're you want to do you just need to find the tools that make this in this specific software i agree 100 percent. right devil's advocate take two <laughs> Okay, so I guess you almost convinced me. I, I'm just thinking about, you said that this uh, this project really started um, with someone uh, not being happy with how Blender, like the original Blender works and with some code being rejected, you know, some proposals. I guess this this happens a lot in in, in the right-click uh, select uh, forum, right? The, the, the place where you can suggest uh, suggest some changes for for Blender, and there are there are a lot of ideas. The community is really big, so so you know, sometimes some ideas are competing, and they they cannot be oh put into Blender. But I was wondering whether your project, like the the Blender for artists that you are involved in, 
is some kind of in some kind of communication with the Blender Foundation and the, the developers of of the original version of Blender, or is it like a separate uh, parallel route? Okay. Um, in reality, we're not a competition. It's more of a symbiosis. So we merge Blender to be for artists every week, and we have commit code to Blender before. Uh, especially with one of the developers that I sponsor, Iyad. Um, and we report bugs. We find a lot of bugs and we report a lot of them. So as a Blender tester, we're very active in the tracker by reporting some issues. And every now and then we commit code to actually improve it. So for example, renaming collections. Uh, if if artist needs this in its workflow with the project project. So for example, the painterly project that I do is my test project for Philly for artists uh, or BFA. And I develop or I request and we develop features for it. So for example, from the asset browser, you usually don't know if you're dragging in the collection as an instance or link to scene. We added a button to tell you and to also toggle before you drag something in as an instance or link to scene. This is something that I can do in the interface from before artists. But for example, re batch renaming a collection, this was code that we commit. And by in this case, this was something that I needed for the project. Do we add this to before artists? No, because it is a core feature. If it's a core feature and we need it inside of before artists, do we do the work of maintaining this code? Or do we give this code to Blender for everybody else so that we get this code for later? So anything that's feature-based goes to Blender. And anything that is GUI-based within the paradigm that we use goes and stays inside of the artist. So the symbiosis of features coming in from Blender and adding the features to Blender if we need them is the symbiotic relationship that we try to do. Many times, a lot of the bug reports don't get fixed or um, some of the code just is, doesn't get accepted, but that's, that's okay. I mean, we don't do a lot of feature development. It's all about the GUI, but with 3,500 changes to Blender, I mean, that should be enough to maintain. But uh, yeah, so it's a symbiosis. Yeah, that's great. I guess it's like for the benefit of, of all of, of the artists, like it's, it's in the name of the project. Uh, well, it, it really got me interested in that, you know, yeah. uh, the way you described it, because I've, uh, you know, I've stick to the original Blender for for a long time and haven't really tried these other versions. Do you also kind of sometimes jump into the original, you know, the, the vanilla Blender, or, or always sticking to the the before artists for your project, like for example, for these experiments? I try to, but when I do, I get very frustrated, even if I use my old hotkeys. Um, it just feels broken. It just feels like broke. it's a broken blender. Um, because as I mentioned, there's a lot of polish in, in before artists, like a lot of polish, which makes it feel like when I go back, I feel like I'm in a dirty room. Like, where is my socks? Where's, where, where are my glasses? Why hasn't somebody washed the dishes yet? Yeah, I've already cleaned the kitchen. I can cook. But when I go back to blender, it's like, this kitchen's dirty again. So I get very frustrated. But I do have to go back when I do bug testing. So um, the typical workflow that we have is that if we find a bug, test if it's in Blender. If it's not in Blender, then it's a B4 artist bug. But if it's uh, not a bug, if it is a bug in Blender, report to Blender. 
So we have to go back to Blender to test a lot of things every now and then. Mm, okay. But mm -hmm. I can't work in Blender, not anymore. Not after Leaf Artist. I used Blender for three and a half years in animation studios. But when I started using Leaf Artist, I couldn't go back, unfortunately. And I still can't. But uh, it's probably because I'm used to it. But it does yeah, feel like a dirty kitchen. It, it kind of keeps you motivated to, to, you know, to develop before artists and not just like drop it. Well, right now, I've got my whole career invested in the project. Uh, I just recently got a small uh, patronage or a good patronage to finance me developing this a bit more to also help me to sponsor and support the people that I like that helps me to develop like a yard and others that I'm looking into. So it's kind of like a love child now. And also my work depends on it. For example, scene management inside the outliner in Blender is impossible. You can't. You can only delete scene. In B for Artists, you can create, link, copy, do all of that inside of the outliner. It's, it's just comfortable. So if you're working with dozens of scenes to render something in the outliner with two monitors, for example, it's just easier and simpler inside of B for Artists because in Blender, that's impossible. You can't. I guess this this kind of is an approach that Blender has in in its philosophy, like the, that you have your tool and you customize it to your needs, and you kind of own your own tool. Exactly, and that's the beautiful thing. That's the beautiful thing of Blender, and actually, I'm very thankful for Blender because of that, and that's why I consider it a symbiosis. It's kind of like B for Artists has ten to fifteen thousand downloads per month. That is only zero point eight percent of the Blender downloads per month. We're not even 1% of the market share. But this 1% is at least, it's kind of like a big whale. And there's a little fish just cleaning the parasites off the whale and making sure the whale is nice and clean. That's beef rider. It's the little, mm -hmm. it's the wars fish. And that's, and blend is the giant whale of the code that we can live off. There's no competition. The whale is happy, swims in the sea and does its thing. And the little fish is happy too. And, and in the same way, the person who finds the little fish, they can get their little fins cleaned as well. So that kind of little metaphor is, is, is basically, that's how we see it. So yeah, that's why there's the symbiosis. Yeah, great. Uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the, the painterly thing. Uh, that's why I mentioned Krita before. And I also like, uh, when I was looking at your experiments with the shaders and the, all the painterly stuff that's, uh, that comes out of a blender, Especially the, especially the shaders oh, that, that, that these kind of like rough brush stroke, brush stroke effects, and they they kind of look very, um, I'd say, digitally dirty in some way, and it very much reminded me of the way that uh, that works from uh, heavy paint application users look like. I don't know if you have come across this app. Heavy paint. I may have heard of it, but I have not used it in a workflow. Okay, so uh, I even had the chance in one of the previous podcasts, not uh, not in Subsurface Talks, but in CG Talks, uh, to talk with the developer of it. He's also a Blender user, uh, Von Ling. He's and he started developing this uh, app just for himself because he didn't find the tools that that he really wanted that were kind of like stripped of all these you know bells and whistles of Photoshop or these uh, apps that weren't really designed for a painter and he wanted to use it on mobile so that he could you know carry his ipad or whatever 
and he developed it uh, using uh, Godot engine, I think, or something like that. So like a game engine to develop uh, a painting app. And, and it had like very, um, I'd say crude, uh, like very rough uh, tools that were limiting you to, to just like paint with a digital brush uh, without all those, you know, layers. Like he also introduced layers later on, but uh, first when he started, it was, it was very rough. And, uh, you know, the brush strokes were, were very, uh, very rough and, and digital, like kind of a little bit of a retro, uh, you know, pixel art vibe, but, but it was high resolution, but it was a lot of uh, this kind of digital mixing. And it, it was like, you could see that it is, a, it is a digital painting. It wasn't really mimicking that much of a natural media. Um, so I, I guess you could you could look it look it up, uh, and there's kind of uh, like a whole commu small community of, of painters uh, that are using this app. And uh, I think it has a specific style of because of how the app works, and it also has this kind of uh, you know make your own tools approach uh, to the thing. But yeah, but I'm yeah. guessing that uh, you know uh, with Blender for artists, you have a project that's uh, that's small, but it has a really nice mission. Also, also reminds me of Krita that it's a little bit smaller right now. It's kind of following the footsteps of Blender in terms of running an open source project and building the community and getting some hype for it. That's true. Well, my Painterly project is focused on a number of principles. Mm -hmm. One, laziness. <laughs> so, well, well, no, that's not it. But like, basically, I thought when I started the project, I had a number of parameters that I needed to complete. One of them was Temporal coherence, which means per frame, the painting needs to be coherent, which means uh, it needs to be not too glitchy, not too jumping around, not too hard stop motion. So I needed temporal coherence. The second was spatial coherence. So I wanted to use the 3D tools that I know, the 3D layout, cameras, characters, rigging, and animation to have a spatial coherence. So that means the brush strokes need to be the same size far away as it is close. The next thing I needed to do was I did not want to worry about topology. So topology does not have to be important to draw. So with my painterly effect, I redesigned that I remesh the topology and I change it up and whatever, smooth it out so that I can I don't have to care about the topology. I can use as many low or high um, pieces, just got to make it relatively blobby because I wanted this blobby painty shape on the geometry and not have to worry about it. So no clean topology. I don't care if the topology sucks, it doesn't matter. So that's another thing, because I don't have a lot of time, a lot of power to do things. The other thing was not worry about UVs. So I thought for spatial coherence, I need the texture strokes to have some kind of coherence on the geometry. So spatial coherence means I don't, I need to not worry about the UVs, but at the same time, use the UVs to develop the brush strokes so that I can have in the shadow, I have one direction of strokes in the light, I have another direction of strokes and the orientation of the UV defines how those strokes are pointing. You know, does it go across the arm or up the arm? I can use that on the UV, but I don't need perfect UV unwrapping to use the effect. So, so I have spatial coherence with the brush strokes with a direction based on the geometry 
but I don't need to worry about the UVs to define the brushes. So no UVs, no topology, no UVs, spatial coherence, temporal coherence. The next thing that I needed was I needed uh, no shower door effect. So what is the NPR shower door effect? With all painterly techniques, everybody in 3D is cursed with the shower door effect. What is the shower door effect? If you look, if you're inside the shower and there's water on the glass, like, like the droplets on the glass, and you look through at the, at, the, at the toilet in the corner, and you look through at the toilet and you move your head, the, the, the paint, or the, sorry, not the paint, the water droplets on the glass are stuck to the glass, but the camera moves around and everything behind the glass is disconnect from the water droplets. This is the shower door effect or the NPR curse. So a lot of people try to stick the paint directly on the models like they did in Arcane, or they use different types of techniques like in Spider-Verse where they're using actual brush strokes in 3D space, or they're using compositing in 3D space to develop the paint effect inside the 3D space. That is the solution. You need paint in the 3D space. That's why I thought to use UVs in the 3D space for the paint. So that's spatial coherence to fight against the shower door technique, because if you have a too strong filter in compositing with no depth perception, no spatial coherence, if we move the camera and the paint is disconnected from the geometry, then it disconnects the viewer from the paint and the 3D world. And you say, oh, that's 3D, that's CG, oh, it's just an effect, or it's very digital, or I'm worried about the technique and less about the story. You're supposed to be lost in the story. So I started working on this concept called the sunny rain technique, which is very similar to what Spider-Verse did with um, Gwen's world. The sunny rain technique is where you have the water droplets fall through the sky in a 3D space, like a volume, and you're drawing the paint in the volume, and you're using your lens effects and your atmosphere and your brush strokes in 3D, very similar to grease pencil but you're also doing it with the atmosphere and everything else. That's, this, that's the sunny rain technique, which I also use. And then on top of that, my other rule was no heavy compositing and no heavy rendering because I can't have so much space. I have 20 minutes of animation, 25 minutes of animation soon, another 45 minutes of animation. That's a lot of hard drive space, especially if I render in EXRs with multiple layers and things like that. I can't afford that many hard drives. It's not even going to fit in my computer. I would have to buy a server to do something like that. So I thought, I need something that doesn't require a lot of hard drive space. So render once, color once, that's it. So when I do my painterly technique, I go through the technique so that it projects onto the canvas. I render to disk on EXR, so I do the color balancing with the paint strokes. I exaggerate the paint strokes using normals on a real canvas in 3D, and then I can render the canvas or relight the canvas with new lights or put the canvas anywhere I want with the rendered frame and get the brush uh, texture of the painting that I've already worked on with the spatial coherence, temporal coherence, the sunny door effect, so that uh, based on the UVs for the spatial coherence to create the effect that I have. So if you search on Google for DJ Unknown Android Repair Shop, Search episode one or something like that. You can see the effect and animation right there on YouTube. So yeah, check it out. I highly recommend. It's been a good year and a bit developing that. And I 
the benefits of using BFA to do that or B varietist was um, it helped me save time on small things like creating the trees, uh, doing the layout, setting up the shots, things like that. Yeah, I really, really love that approach. And even when listening to you, uh, to you talking about these techniques and sometimes I'm even, you know, getting lost about the technicals. And I guess this isn't the core thing because you kind of get the, get the tools working for you, like um, using your limitations to your advantage because you're really, you know, finding a way through the woods and uh, yeah, making it work, right? And the, the yeah. end result counts. Yeah, the core tools that are vertex colors is what drive the colors. It's all mostly shader. This, the depth thing of the brushes is in the shader. The, the lighting and the, the direction and the UVs is set up in the shader. Uh, geometry nose is used a little bit to get kind of like that shower, uh, the sunny rain effect with uh, some geometry in the atmosphere. EV refraction is a very important one. The EV shadows and the Fernell, the Fernell node was super important in this case. Using uh, the camera Z depth inside the shaders was really important. And I also created a quick little add-on to help me apply the shaders to everything, which requires four different layers of vertex color attributes to define things. So I can define which part is generated UVs and which part is not, so that I can hide the seams. You know, you just paint over a seam with the vertex color so that I can hide it away with some generated UVs, which is triplanar. So if there are, so, you know, for high polish, I would do that more often. I don't enough, but I do have a system for that. So the, the technical aspects is a lot about vertex colors, a lot about shader nose, triplanar, uh, Z-depth inverse with modulos and uh, flooring and ceiling, and different things like that. It's a lot of shader stuff. Uh, in the end, I hit the, the node cap. So I had to optimize my nodes in the shader a little bit. In my old computer, this shader would take about five minutes to compile for a change. So I had to do it in pieces. In my new computer, it still takes a little while, like maybe 10, 15, 20 seconds. But just to give you an idea, it's, it's a complex shader. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that's the other thing. I also want it to be super easy on production. One material for everything. Drive the colors, but one material, you know, compile once, ready for everything with the animation inside the material. So I wanted it to be super easy to implement at a scale of thousands of objects, hundreds of characters if I need to. One material, paint with vertex colors, you're done. I wanted something very quick and easy because one, laziness. Oh, yeah. But it really doesn't sound so, like lazy, to me at least. Uh, but yeah, once you get you know the, the tools working for you, I'm, I get, I'm guessing like the, you said that this year is really exciting for you. You have been like developing this whole, uh, this whole kind of pipeline, let's say, or workflow, and with, with all the experiments, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, whether you have some kind of. Uh, project like idea in mind of a, of a story that you want to tell with that tool set that you developed and with this whole stylistic like let's say the, the look that phase of of it all and uh, whether we can expect as the possible audience of, of your project like can you tell us a, a little bit about your dreams and plans for the future okay all right so i'm at a turning point in life the 10 years of freelancing is finally coming to an end and you're the first to know one of the first 
Um, in this case, the the idea right now is that I still have six more episodes of the first music album by DJ Unknown. So the first music album is about the location. Where is this story? What is happening in this story? Each episode is connected. Each episode is a neighborhood of the city. New Hope Limited. So this city is a sci-fi city set in the future where artificial intelligence is actually taken over politics. There are no more politicians. Everybody has an artificial intelligence representative in politics and uh, cybernetics and robotics is now taken over. Everything, various things are very automated. The UBI has been implemented and space is being colonized. And the first partial Dyson sphere is being constructed to get to the first colonies in another star so it's in the near future who knows but uh the story the first music album which is about 13 episodes 12 episodes is about the location and then we have another music album it's already been produced coming out very soon on vinyl and cassette and everything it's really nice also produced by the same person uh dg unknown and this next album will also continue to talk about who are the characters and how is their story? What are their needs and what are their wants? And what is the story? So we have the location, we have the time, we have the general idea of who are the characters in this world or what is this world like. The next music album, which is another 13 episodes, will talk about what is going on and with whom so it's going to be a long it's a long haul it's a very fun project i get to write the stories i i consider this a dream come true because it's a commission-based type job so that and with a lot of creative freedom and expression and i developed the technique to create volume volume of content with relatively cheap animation relatively cheap effort no uvs no topology no materials just get the job done you know uh, really cheap rigs, really cheap everything, so that I can focus on the lighting, the rendering, and the story, and enjoy it. So I can produce maybe one or two minutes every two weeks at full time. Yeah, one week, one minute. That's good work. Seems like an exciting plan. plan. Uh, yeah. So I guess I'm ho I'm hoping that the episode will also help, you know, raising some hype and some interested, uh, some interested viewers. So, um, can you tell maybe to sum this uh, NPR episode uh, where where people can find all those uh, you know experiments of yours and and later maybe follow your creations of the DJ unknown albums and whatever you want to uh, do in the future? So tell us where where people can find you. You can find me at www.trinumedia.com, which is T R I N U M E D I A com trina media uh, that same handle trina media on instagram twitter and also youtube possibly is where you can find a lot of my content when it comes to these music videos dj unknown has the worst seo name to exist so it's going to be really hard to find him but if you search on my channels and also if you search for i think it's let me just confirm the the android repair shop DG Unknown on YouTube, you should be able to find the videos. And the channel is called DG Unknown. DG Unknown's Android Repair Service, sorry, volume number two. 
and you can find the playlist there. Yep, I already feel the personal connection with the name and the project because of my nickname. Thank you again, Andres, for taking the time to being on the show. It was a great conversation and I had a good fun. It was fun and the projects are really exciting. I'm, I'm really glad that it's developing and it's getting you to a bright, creative future that you want it. And uh, yeah, wishing you all the best in your creative journeys and experiments. And I'm glad that we can also participate in it, watching it and it, that you share the knowledge and, the, and your discoveries freely with the community. Thanks for having me on board as well. It's, it was really encouraging. I'm really happy you're interested. I'm happy you hear you about the work of people artists. Happy you like the project. And I'll keep you to posted. There's lots to come because I'm finally getting into it more full time. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Life is progressing. All the best. Thanks for that.